David Ben-Gurion made it his life's mission to establish the state of Israel in 1948, ending close to 2,000 years of homelessness for the Jews. A regional war was fought by Israel's enemy on the day Israel was born to ensure that this state would never take hold. Yet once Israel prevailed in that war, it was now up to that same David Ben-Gurion to give shape to this new state. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we're conducting a series of interviews with well-known authors whose books cast light on key people and events in the history of Israel, Zionism, and the U.S.-Israel relationship. My name is David Makovsky, and I'm the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Coret Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. I'm excited to bring you these conversations with top-level scholars and policymakers about critical moments in Israel's history. In 1951, three years into his term as Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion wrote, there was nothing that the Jewish people yearned for more over hundreds of years than a Jewish state. There was nothing the Jewish people were less qualified for than a Jewish state. David Ben-Gurion was singularly determined to sustain and grow the Zionist project. In the 1930s, he displayed an uncanny read of political developments in Europe, predicting the genocidal consequences of the rise of Nazism. By 1945, he was predicting a war with the Arab states, which would materialize three years later. He prided himself on always looking at the challenges ahead. Despite the unprecedented achievement of the state itself, even Ben-Gurion was daunted by the tasks that lay ahead of him. Questions remain over how Israel would conduct foreign relations, defend itself, absorb a massive influx of immigrants, and at the most basic level, define its own national identity. Early Israel was poor, overburdened, and isolated, but alive. With the litany of challenges that lay ahead for the new state and its prime minister, it is perhaps unsurprising that Ben-Gurion's time in office was often stormy and controversial. In 1951, just six years after the Holocaust ended, Ben-Gurion and the Jewish agency chairman, Nachum Goldman, began negotiations with West German Chancellor Adenauer to secure reparations for the Jewish people. This effort drew an emotional response from many, including leader of the opposition, Menachem Begin, and other members of the revisionist Chayrut party. They considered reparations to be immoral, an acceptance of blood money that came close to violence in the streets of Jerusalem. Nevertheless, these reparation efforts passed through the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, in a contentious vote, and it provided billions to this war-torn Israeli economy. Another debate internally was how would Israel relate to its ultra-Orthodox community. Ben-Gurion saw compulsory military service as obvious, given the critical enmity towards the new state in the Middle East, and he also thought there needed to be burden-sharing among its citizens. Yet Ben-Gurion backed away from his insistence when it came to the ultra-Orthodox. He believed they were a marginal remnant of the Holocaust, and they would fade away with time. He didn't foresee the growth of the ultra-Orthodox in the decades ahead. When it came to foreign policy, Ben-Gurion resisted calls from within his own party, Mapai, to align with the Soviet Union 
and instead opted for stronger ties with the West. Ben-Gurion favored close ties with the United States, but the Eisenhower administration wanted to hold Israel at an arm's distance, as Washington sought to woo Arab states, led by Egypt, as a part of a Cold War strategy against the Soviet Union. Instead, in a secret move, Israel worked with Britain and France to break Egypt's nationalization of the critical Suez Canal and to halt Cairo's growing regional dominance. While Israel won a military victory, Eisenhower felt this undermined America's effort to garner Arab support in the Middle East. The U.S. forced Ben-Gurion to withdraw from the peninsula with severe threats. Despite prioritizing Israel's relations with the United States, which would not blossom until the early to mid-60s, Ben-Gurion was not afraid to spar with the U.S. after the Suez Crisis of 56. Yet he would pull out, as Eisenhower demanded, as he saw the larger picture of avoiding a collision with Washington. Tensions reemerged between Ben-Gurion and Eisenhower in 1960 upon America's discovery that Israel had built a nuclear facility at Damona in the Negev, the south, with French help. Indeed, the whole decision for Israel to go for a nuclear weapon was the subject of a fierce debate within Israel. Some thought only world powers could afford to go for a bomb. Yet Ben-Gurion was not deterred. He sided with a young aide, Shimon Peres, who would go on to an illustrious career in Israel, culminating being prime minister and president of the country. Ben-Gurion and Peres felt that Israel needed an insurance policy if Israel was to survive in a hostile region. Israel may have had many founders, but David Ben-Gurion was preeminent. He had iron will, and he never flinched from making big decisions during these first years of Israel's existence. To discuss David Ben-Gurion, the person, and more specifically, Ben-Gurion's experience as prime minister, I'm delighted to be rejoined by one of Israel's leading historians and experts on all things Ben-Gurion, Professor Anita Shapira. Anita is the founder of the Yitzhak Rabin Center and the former Ruben Marenfeld Professor in the Study of Zionism at Tel Aviv University. She taught at the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia, and elsewhere. She has published numerous books and articles on the history of Zionism and Israel. We should note that Anita previously joined the podcast to discuss Ben-Gurion and the decision to declare the state of Israel in 1948. I would encourage all of you to listen to that podcast. It was episode one of season two. Today, we will be discussing her enlightening biography, Ben-Gurion, Father of Modern Israel. This biography provides a wonderful entry into the extensive historiography on Ben-Gurion. Shapira's unique access to Ben-Gurion's personal archives and her focus on Ben-Gurion's post-48 years provides a fresh and holistic portrait of Israel's first prime minister. Anita, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us again on Decision Points. Glad that you're with us. I, I want to discuss with you, ben, you know, we discussed in, in season two, episode one, Ben-Gurion's crucial role in the, the decision to establish the state. And so we will direct our listeners to that episode. And instead, we will focus on some of Ben-Gurion's other big decision points. But before we get into some of the substantive decisions, let's just begin with a biographical question. Is there any way to evaluate the contribution of Ben-Gurion's family and his father, Avigdor, 
to his Zionist orientation. You mentioned that Avigdor was a loyal Zionist and a member of the Lovers of Zion movement, even writing a letter to Theodore Herzl, the founder of the Zionist movement, to seek advice. In addition, Ben-Gurion's grandfather taught him Hebrew from the age of three. So how much was Ben-Gurion's early interest in Zionism a product of his upbringing? Of course, his upbringing contributed to his Zionist early linking. But I think more than his father, it were his friends in the little shtetl of Poinsk where he lived that inspired him and made him to an active Zionist because these friends, at least two of them, became very famous in Palestine. And they were very close friends. And also the girl that he courted went to Palestine. So we have here many, many influences except the family. His father was not a very respectable person in the Jewish community. He was a little, I would say, more to the modern side, which was not taken with great admiration at this very conservative community. But the younger people, they were really the true Zionists and they led the youth of Poins to Palestine. Something. You mentioned the friendship. There's always a story of one guy who said, you never chat. And he, he came and he said, okay, we don't chat, let's chat. He didn't build like these interpersonal connections like many classical politicians until he became Ben-Gurion as the leader where, you know, he was the dominant force. I'm trying to understand on the way up the ladder, what led to a sense that this guy is something special? How much of it was his friendships with Yitzhak Ben-Svi, you know, Yitzhak Tabenkin, Beryl Kaltzenelson? To what extent did the friendships help create alliances for him? as he became a leader? Well, first of all, I listen to the names that you mentioned, and I think who of all of them was a pragmatic doer. And Ben-Gurion was the only one among them who was capable of moving things, of doing things. They were very interesting people, intellectual. And Berlkatz Nelson, very early on, understood the special character of Ben-Gurion. And he became a bosom friend of Ben-Gurion very early on. And he used to say to young people that did not think highly of Ben-Gurion, Ben-Gurion had no charisma. And he used to say to them, you don't know who Ben-Gurion is. Ben-Gurion is history's gift to the Jewish people. And I think this definition is proven more and more true with time because we see how he grows 
he did not come out from points, the Ben-Gurion that we know in 48. He went through, uh, I would say, coaching of, of many years, first in the Histadrut, and he was a very militant Histadrut uh, labor leader. That's, that's the trade union for those of our listeners who don't know. Yeah. Yes. And then he became the chairman of the Zionist organization in Palestine. And here he had for the first time to try his hand in diplomacy to meet people out of his milieu. And he understood that he has to look at things differently. For me, for instance, the moment that he became a leader of the Jewish people was when he put aside the rivalry with Jabotinsky and met him in London and very quickly they reached an agreement. This agreement did not work because the Histadrut members in a vote decided that they don't want it. And the same happened to Jabotinsky at his movement. But here we see those two leaders find common language very easily, very quickly. And this means that both of them had the understanding that at that crucial moment in 1934, after the rise of Nazism, it was very important to get to the point where the Jewish people can unite against the threat that is coming. And from this moment on, Ben-Gurion acted like a true leader. When the, the alliance with Jabotinsky did not work out, he went and made the alliance with the Mizrahi, with the religious Zionists. And this alliance actually became a historic uh, alliance that held on until 1977. So this was the moment that Ben-Gurion became a national leader. But in the Jewish community in Palestine, the issue he was already well known and he was getting better known among the Jewish people in Eastern Europe, for example. And this is how this boy from a very humble background became the leader of the Jewish people. One of the issues after the World War II was Ben-Gurion now sees the war is coming. He, he says this in a meeting with American Jewish philanthropists in 1945 in New York. He sees the war is coming. He has a meeting with the colonial secretary of Britain after the war saying, you know, we're, we are depleted in Britain. We will not keep this mandate too much longer. And he sees that soon enough, the, the issue of a state and a war is all going to come to a head. He has a very different view than the Haganah and the Palmach, you know, which were the, 
the mainstays of the pre-state yeshuv, the, the Jewish community. And, and he always wanted to push people during the war, go join the Royal Air Force, be part of a big formation, because wars are going to be done by people in the Air Force, and it will be armies. He saw armies where others saw snipers. This was one of the big disputes between him and the young IDF that just started acting. The IDF leadership was still tuned to the war against the local Arabs or against the British, while he already thought about the war against the armies of the Arab states. And he thought in big formations. They were thinking about a platoon. He was thinking about a brigade, about a division. And they used to say the old man went gaga. He was speaking about planes, about tanks, while they were using light weaponry. So this was the reason there were the terrible discussions between him and the Haganah leadership that still thought in terms of a small underground force, not more than that. How did he impose his will on them? And this also relates, right, to the breaking the siege of Jerusalem. I mean, I'm sure everyone wanted to break the siege of Jerusalem in 1947, early 48, because people would have been starved. But he also understood the, the role of Jerusalem in, in Jewish history. So I'm just curious, how does one guy who's not a military man impose his will on people who see things differently than he does? How does he do it? I'll tell you. They knew that he had something that they did not have. He had leadership. And the, the fact that he had this character, this iron will that pushed everybody to do more than they thought they were capable, this was what made him become the leader of the war. Fascinating. And by the way, if we're talking about military issues, I mean, the issue on you know, once a state is formed in the 50s, another big debate he had with parts of the military, the Golda Meir on the diplomatic side and, and others, the scientific community was Demona. The whole idea of, you know, Israel should go for a nuclear deterrent, which Shimon Peres, one of his young aides, pushed for. And some people thought, you're crazy. Only superpowers can do this, not a little country. And again, he imposes his will. He backs Paris in the 50s on a military issue. And I'm just curious here, too, about how he's able to impose his will on people who think he's crazy. You know, people were saying, I did not agree with him, but I had to follow him because every time he proved to be right. So this was a great characteristic. If you must follow somebody because he always proves to be right. That's the leader. <laughs> One of the big decisions that he makes is the idea of immigration, believing after the state, 
I think Levi Eshkol said, you know, the state is broke. There's no money. 1% of the population has been killed in 1948. And yet Ben-Gurion thought, well, the raison d'etre of the state is to bring in people from persecuted lands, to bring in Jews as a Jewish state. And he was the one who pushed very hard for this, even though they lived in tents in what they call Mabarot, in transit camps, often at the borders of the state, what they call peripheria in Hebrew or periphery in English. Can you just tell us about the debate within Israel? Look, he thought that the Jewish state cannot survive without a great Jewish population. And he was willing to take every Jew from everywhere. And the reservations that some people had about Jews from Middle Eastern countries, he never agreed to them. He said every Jew can become as advanced as I became. So the fact that he pushed all the time for immigration was one of the main features of his policy. But, you know, he knew the problems of the newcomers. He understood the problems. But in his heart, he once wrote, the Jews for whom the Jewish state was built perished in the Holocaust. And now we have to build this state with whoever we can find. And this was the idea of the mass immigration. Any Jew was welcome because otherwise the Jewish state would not survive. And this was a very strong conviction of his. And he made people do what they did not want to do. Like what you mentioned, there was no money, there were no capabilities of building quickly housing and education and you you name it. And nevertheless, he persuaded everybody to do it. One of Ben-Gurion's major decisions was to agree to exempt the ultra-Orthodox from the military draft. He believed they were a relic of the post-Holocaust era. And therefore, he didn't think it was so bad to give them a special dispensation. Can you explain this more? And are there indications that he came to regret this when he saw that this group was not disappearing, but even beginning to grow, maybe even not along as much as it is today, but still was not going in the direction he thought? Ben-Gurion gave an exemption to 400 yeshiva bochers because he believed, as you said, rightly said, that this is a vanishing culture. And as such, he had this sentiment for this culture that actually was his home culture in a way. Now, he did not change his mind, but the fact that he made a ceiling was crucial. The ceiling of 400 was a magic number. Diane later added to that number 
another 200. The tragedy was that Begin lifted the ceiling. He just dropped the ceiling. And the result is that today we had tens of thousands young men that don't go to the army and don't actually work. And the numbers are growing. I just read statistics that in 2040, they would be about a third of Israeli population. This is really going to be too much to carry on the back of the Israeli middle class. Another big decision he made in the early years was to bring the Sephardic Jews or now Mizrahi Jews, it is said, you know, right after the war. This was controversial. Israel was broke and had no money. It lost 1% of its population in, in the 1948 war. On one hand, the move would double the population, even more than double the population between 1949 and 1951. Yet the hardships of the immigration process would leave an endless residue of resentment and bitterness among the descendants of these immigrants against the ruling labor party. Even though the immigrants themselves seem very grateful to come to the Holy Land, this was their dream, they were traditionalists, they saw an effort to force them away, focus on the land, be new Jews. Can you give us a sense about the debate within Ben-Gurion circles? We have to remember, we are talking after the Holocaust. So the Holocaust survivors were the first newcomers to the country, but they were less than 200,000. And this new country needed Jews very much, so much so that when the generals of Israeli army came to Ben-Gurion at the end of the war and told him, we can take the West Bank in a few days. So Ben-Gurion answered, we don't need more land. We need Jews. Now, for him, the idea of population growth was not only an ideology. This was a necessity. This little state, this little new state cannot survive if there are no enough Jews. And it doesn't matter what kind of Jews. He believed that any Jew can become modernized and can become like himself that came from a very backward background. And look what happened to him. And in a way he was right, but he did not understand the complexity of absorbing a population in numbers, doubling the local Jewish population with no money, with no resources. And he was naive to believe that this can be done fast, 10 years, 20 years. This took much more. Even today, the process is not finished. So in this regard, there was a naivete about Ben-Gurion from the social point of view. 
he did not understand that these Jews that looked at him as the Messiah, at the same time, did not wish to do what he wanted them to do, what he needed them to do. He wanted them to settle in the periphery and to settle in cooperative villages, Moshavim, and to work the land. And for them, this was a degradation. For them, they came from a background. They were small merchants, artisans. They did not work the land. Peasants were looked down in Islamic countries. So Ben-Gurion, though he seemed to them like a messiah, did not understand that what he was doing was something that goes against the grain of their culture, of their understanding of what they were supposed to do in the Holy Land. Did anyone make the case to Ben-Gurion among his circle of advisors to say, you mean well, this was the vision of what Zionism was all about, no question. But because of the way it was done, as you point out, what you call the humiliation, that labor as a party would pay a price over time because there would be a backlash, maybe not from these people who were grateful just to be in the promised land, but the next generation and the next generation after that, that this was a long-term consequence that they did not consider. In other words, it wasn't just that Ben-Gurion miscalculated their relationship to plowing the soil, but that the politics of this would be used against labor. Begin in the 1950s is going out to these places, and he's from Poland, <laughs> they're from Yemen, or wherever, from Iraq or Egypt or wherever they are. And he says, I'm, I'm one of you. We connect through the Torah. I might have a shirt and a tie and a coat, but I'm one of you. I mean, this became fertile soil for the next generation where Likud comes to power in 1977. I mean, I'm just wondering if anyone talked to Ben-Gurion in the 50s saying a long-term political consequence for something that you intended to do for all the right reasons but politically, this is not going to turn out well for labor. First of all, labor believed that they are going to stay in power forever. Second, nobody thought in terms of an overturn. So they were sure that there were economic consequences. They were not sure that they want these people, apart from Ben-Gurion. But they never thought about the political consequences of this kind of politics. It's interesting, but we, but this is a fact. And you who studied all these leaders, including Ben-Gurion, but also other labor leaders, he really just imposed his will on the people around him who, who thought Israel can't afford it, but he imposed his will. De definitely, definitely. That was his thing, was I'm being iron will, see it through. Another controversial decision for him in the 50s was maybe connected to that, which is given Israel's poor, poor economic situation, to agree to deal with West Germany after the Holocaust, what was called the reparations. Ben-Gurion was adamant about securing good relations, and he saw 
German reparations as a prerequisite for starting a relationship, which he thought was indispensable given Israel's bad economic situation and the huge economic challenge of integrating the influx of immigrants that we just discussed. And yet there were so many Holocaust survivors or relatives of those who were killed during the Holocaust that this was obviously a very emotionally wrenching decision. Opposition leader Menachem Begin called it blood money. He led to very convulsive demonstrations outside the Knesset. Give us a window into Ben-Gurion's thinking that he was going to work with Conrad Adenauer and navigate around all the emotional landmines because he thought this was economically the right thing for Israel to do. How did he navigate this? The fact is that most of the people supported him. And interestingly, Holocaust survivors supported him. If you take the statistics of those who were arrested when storming the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, the supporters of Begin, in the big demonstration, most of them were not Holocaust survivors. Most of them were newcomer Mizrahim. So this is a very interesting point. Holocaust survivors wanted the agreement to come through. First of all, they understood the pragmatics of the situation. They lived through so much they wanted to reach the level of prosperity that they believed that the reparation would allow them. Second, it was with a torn heart. As a child, I remember the discussions at school. On the one hand, the slogan was, did you murder and also inherit? And on the other hand, we want to sell our dead for money. So these were two approaches and the discussion raged through the country in all levels children. And the interesting thing was that left, the extreme left, Mapai was not left, Mapai was centrist left, but the left and the right combined against Mapai. The left... Mapai is what we would call labor today, right? Okay, just to be clear for our listeners. Yes, because labor wanted a kind of agreement with West Germany. For the left, there was an East Germany. East Germany were all of them saints, but West Germany, they were the descendants of the Nazis. So the left and the right, Begin and his supporters, combined against Ben-Gurion. Nevertheless, most of the people supported him. And, you know, there was an, a joke going on later, later years that uh, Begin did not allow his party members to buy German products. But what can you do when 
to the meeting of the Central Committee of the Herut Party, of the Begins Party, they all came with Volkswagens. So this was a problem. But Ben-Gurion had the support of most of the people because he was pragmatic and also, and this is connected to our next discussion, he showed his unambivalent support for the West, not in any way supporting the Soviet bloc. And this was very, very important, and it was part of the question of the reparation. It's very interesting, because in the, in the U.S. dialogue in 1948, there were people in, in the American national security apparatus who were convinced because Moscow supported the state, that there are these people, they would be pro-Soviet somehow. Clark Clifford, in his meeting with Truman, he refuted that, saying, no, they're running away from the tyranny of the East. They are not pro-Soviet whatsoever. It's a wrong characterization, but in some in the American system persisted, and they used that against the idea of, of supporting a state of Israel. This was the beginning of a policy that ran, I would say, more or less until 67. You know, we always look about the relationship between Israel and the United States as ideal. And indeed, without President Truman, the Jewish state would not be founded. But he supported the Jewish state against the State Department, against his policymakers. And after him, there came the Eisenhower administration, John Foster Dallas as Secretary of State, and they hated Israel. Really, they thought that this little state in the Middle East is a nuisance a nuisance that disturbs our relations with the Arab states, with bringing oil to Europe during the Marshall Plan. And this little state was causing trouble. It doesn't disappear. The problem of Israel's relations with the United States that started even before the state was founded, was ideology against politics, pragmatics. This little state in the Middle East was causing trouble, was a nuisance, because it was disturbing the relations between the United States and the Arab countries. And the Arab countries had oil that was needed for Europe during the Marshall Plan. So all this also was mitigated with a bit of anti-Semitism. Let's face it, those in the State Department, those guys in the State Department, waspish guys did not like those Jews that got unbelievably won the war and now they were still 
challenging everybody in the Middle East. So it was a very difficult time for Israel in the relations with the United States. First of all, we have to remember that during the War of Independence, America did not give Israel weapons. It was the Soviet bloc that supplied Israel with the weapons that made her win the war. But Ben-Gurion was never leftist pro-Soviet. He never had any illusions about the Soviet regime. He wanted the support of the United States, but the United States had other interests. Right. And one of those interests, I think you would agree, as you said very correctly, about was to keep the oil flowing for European reconstruction during the Marshall Plan. And it was also because people like George Kennan, Loy Henderson, and others saw the importance of trying to harness Arab nationalism as hopefully as a, you know, in the broader effort against, in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And they were focused on Nasser in the 50s. Now, as it turned out, you could say the U.S. miscalculated because here the U.S. reversed the results of Suez, of the crisis of 56, and Nasser lost the war militarily, but he won politically because, you know, the U.S. threw out the, the British and French and Israeli gains, and Nasser was seen as a hero in the Arab world. Was there ever regret on the Ben-Gurion side? Like, I could have done 56 better. First of all, Ben-Gurion had no alternative. In 1955, there was the known, the, the big deal of arms sales from the Soviet Union to Egypt. I cannot understand how come after this deal, the United States did not understand that there was no hope of drawing Nazar from the camp of the Soviets to the camp of the West. It was not a question of money. It was a question of anti-colonialism. Now, Ben-Gurion had to have allies. He understood that his little state cannot survive without allies. Now, after the arms deal between Nasser and the Soviet Union, I remember there were lines standing of women giving their rings and jewelry for defense money. Now, you have to understand that this was still a very difficult time and here we felt nobody supports us and then the French because they were involved in Algeria and Nasser supported the Algerians against the French the French were willing to support Israel and they sold weapons to Israel and they became the allies by the way it went on the weapons supply until the Sixth Day War. The war was won by the planes, the Mirage supplied by the French. So we have to understand that the question of having an ally was a major one in the 50s. And Ben-Gurion had no alternative 
England and France joined in a collusion against Nasser. And they needed Israeli involvement as a pretext for their involvement. But Israel had another aim in this Sinai campaign. Israel wanted, first of all, to give a beating to Nasser to destroy the Soviet weapons. And the third thing, to open the Tehran Straits. First of all, the West started to understand that this little country is not going to vanish. And this was important. Second, the Tehran Straits were open. And for 10 years, there was no infiltration. There was quiet on the border with Egypt. And these 10 years were essential to absorbing the immigration and growing the economy and having Israel become a state. No, that's right. And the run-up to the 67 war, you had a situation where the Americans and they had to go to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, where Eisenhower was living, to say, was there a commitment in 57 by Dulles that said, if we don't open up the straits, we recognize Israel's right to do it? Turned out there was that commitment. You know, without 56, you know, I don't know if 67 would have started that way. And your point about also the countdown that once the Soviets started giving arms to Nasser, Ben-Gurion thought, if you wait too long, you're going to be dealing with more Soviet weapons. It's a very interesting point. The last question in the 50s was the nuclear issue and some things you can't say, of course. But Shimon Peres, I have a whole episode of talking about Shimon Peres in the 50s. But, you know, Ben-Gurion was the decider. He was number one, no question. And there was a debate internally. You know, some of the scientists were not sure that the, the nuclear approach is good for a small country like Israel. Well, de Meir and others also wondered about Paris's role in dealing with the French. But the decision for a tiny country to go nuclear, that's a big deal. And without Ben-Gurion's blessing, it's impossible to think it would have happened. Can you give us some insight into Ben-Gurion's thinking in the 50s about this issue that he enabled Paris to go forward with the French and make this idea that was very controversial into a reality? First of all, Ben-Gurion had in mind the idea of Israel's nuclear power since 48. And he sent scientists to study nuclear physics in the States very early on. He was far thinking. Second, the thing that worried him, and I'll be short on it, was demography. Even if Israel had grown from one million to two million at that time, in the tens of millions of Arabs around it, the balance of power was very shaky. And that's why he needed the nuclear power to upset the power of demography. And this was something that he understood and others understood. And he also thought that 
there is no way that we can avoid other countries getting nuclear weapons. In such case, Israel needs to be in this club. So now bring it to today, and it's always risky to say, what would Washington say? What would Lincoln say? What would Roosevelt say? Because they're not alive today. So it's the speculation of historians like yourself. What would Ben-Gurion think of Israel today? The, you know, the dream versus the reality. On the one hand, he would be elated to see Israel these days. A country with more than 8 million people, a blooming country with a very strong economy, innovative and very successful. On the other hand, he would feel very much alienated by the polarization in Israeli society. This fact that causes people not to look at the common good, but at party politics, at private good. And this would have very much disappointed him. He believed that the pioneer spirit of young Israel could keep on forever. But as in the States, the same in Israel, the country gets older, more materialistic, less idealistic, and it's very difficult to imagine how he would have reacted to what is around him today. But I would say, that the question of polarization and alienation between parts of the population would be for him considered as a major threat to the existence of the state. I mean, in a certain way, Ben-Gurion, because was always on a wartime footing, this idea of what they call in Hebrew, a kind of a Garrison democracy. He did not want a mobilized society. This is the translation of what you say. But he wanted the spirit of pioneering, the spirit of dedicating oneself to the common good. And this is something that today we don't see everywhere in Israel. And this is very, very disappointing. And I am sure that he would have my kind of opinion about it. <laughs> well, I see you as someone who's channeling David Ben-Gurion because you have spent so much of your life understanding not just him, but also the people around him. And you've That's written right. books on all these people that I could think of no better person really to share thoughts about David Ben-Gurion than you. So, Professor Anita Shapiro, I want to thank you so much for this wide-ranging conversation and really making David Ben-Gurion come alive for us on Decision Points. I want to thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. The great Roman historian Tacitus said, quote, reason and judgment are the qualities of a leader, end quote. Beryl Katzenelson, 
a great Zionist thinker and perhaps the person closest to David Ben-Gurion called Ben-Gurion, quote, history's gift to the Jewish people, end quote. What made Ben-Gurion such a great leader? Since the early 1930s, as he feared the advent of Hitler, he had a single-minded determination to press for the creation of Israel. He was a visionary. He understood what was necessary for a Jewish state to emerge. He was prescient in predicting the unfolding of major world events and its impact on the creation of the very state that he dreamed of. He had an extraordinary feel for what is coming and how to respond to it, whether it was the rise of Nazism, the emergence of the United States as the next world power with the eclipse of Britain, upcoming wars with the Arab states. He could see around corners, if you will. More importantly, he had the determination to and the courage to do what is necessary. Ben-Gurion's achievements were towering. He helped launch a state and served as its preeminent leader for the first two decades of its existence. What made Ben-Gurion great was not just his foresight, but he was also a historic figure because he had the political courage to make some of the toughest decisions. He did not flinch. His eyes were fixated on what was truly consequential and not on what would make him popular at a given moment. He knew that doubling Israel's population by bringing poor immigrants from all over the Middle East would be a short-term burden, especially as it would come in the immediate aftermath of the 1948 war when this new country absorbed the loss of 1% of its population. To put it in American terms, it would be like losing over 3 million Americans. He also knew that it would not be popular to take money from a newly reconstituted West Germany when the crematoria at Auschwitz were still smoldering less than a decade after the Holocaust. These are just two of the many, many decisions Ben-Gurion made. Not every single one was successful, but the young state could not afford paralysis. Yet Ben-Gurion was successful as a leader as he was able to focus relentlessly on long-term impact and not just on the short-term pain. As we heard from Anita Shapira, he didn't lead by dint of a natural charisma or by being a back-slapping politician. He led because people saw in him someone who they could trust because he was able to articulate a common purpose and demonstrated what course of action was needed in order to reach that noble objective. Nobody could doubt his devotion to building a Jewish sovereign democratic commonwealth after two millennia of homelessness. Zionism had many proverbial parents, but David Ben-Gurion stood above them all as a founder of the state. He was an exemplar of unrelenting dedication to a cause guided by principle and not whim. He guided foundational decisions upon which all subsequent Israeli history rests. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. 
I hope you listen to all of season four and to all previous seasons as well. You can find Decision Points on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast, as well as on the Washington Institute website. Download and subscribe to never miss an episode. While you're there, please leave us a review and rating and tell your friends. I want to thank all those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinators, Gabriel Epstein, David Patkin, and Jonah Schrock, and our researchers, Valeria De La Fuente and Stuart Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, Carolina Krauskopf, and Maria Rodacci of the Washington Institute. And finally, Adrian Bain, our producer, and Richard Myron from Earshot Strategies. Thank you all.